Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the 18th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. Uh, my guests today are Dr. Julie Brigham Grady and Adrian Lamb, both from the Geoscience Department at UMass Amherst, which, full disclosure, is also my department. <laughs> um, uh, Dr. Julie Brigham Grady um, is a professor and also the department head in geoscience. She's interested in the climate of the Arctic and the history of past warm periods that help us understand the current warm period that we are currently in. Uh, she's originally from central Michigan and she got her PhD at UC Boulder. Thank you for joining us, Julie. Thank you. Uh, Adrienne Lamb is a current PhD student in the geoscience department. She is a paleontologist and she studies deep time and recent evolutionary dynamics. She's originally from Beaver Dam, Virginia. Thank you for joining us, Adrian. Thanks for having me. And joining as my co-host today is comedian John Ross. He is an award-winning TV writer. He's written for ABC, NBC, CBS, HBO, Disney, Nickelodeon, and also performs stand-up on Conan O'Brien's show. And he currently hosts a monthly comedy show at the Wheelhouse in Greenfield, which is downstairs from Hawks and Reed. Uh, Thanks, Laura. It's, uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. Good to see you outside of the uh, comedy club. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you, too. Okay, so I think we'll just dive right into it. Um, so I think, Julie, we'll start with you, if that's okay. So just go ahead and tell us about your research. Yeah, so I'm interested in how the Arctic went from kind of forested with no ice, no glaciers in it about three million years ago, and to how it got to where it is today, but particularly what previous warm periods were like. So what are we, because as far as I'm concerned today, what's happening with our planetary system is kind of deja vu, that things are moving in the direction that we would predict. A lot of the things that are mig migrating with various ecosystems and so on is, is exactly what we'd expect. So we want to learn from those previous warm periods and um, see what those consequences are for the future. Another part of my research is looking not only at the evolution as a whole, but also I run a undergrad program on Svalbard, uh, looking at tidewater glaciers, taking undergraduates to the ice front to learn about science and how to conduct science and about the retreat of the glaciers. So, um, so you talked about the past warm periods in the Arctic. So is there a specific warm period that you're focusing on or...? Well, my recent research that I'm working on right now is taking a long record of back to 3.6 million that we collected in a, in a large meteorite impact lake in, in northeast Russia. And this continuous record shows us that there's at least um, 15 to 17 times when over the last few million years, the Arctic has gotten pretty warm. And today, an area with this lake is just tundra, but all these previous times, or many of these previous times, particularly the larger ones, um, trees came back. So we lost the tundra in that area of the mm. Arctic. Uh, trees migrated northward, um, and things were warmer. And so we didn't understand why they were warmer, what drives that. And so by understanding previous warm periods, we can look at how sensitive the Earth system is to um, the present warming that we're inducing with fossil fuels. So. Um, so I'm using these as analogs 
um, so that we can move forward. And I like to use the analogy in public forums that I feel like I'm a time lord, like from Doctor Who, because I can go <laughs> backwards in time and I can go forwards in time with the tools that are provided by climate modelers mm. in terms of projecting forward, forward and backwards. So yeah. uh, using the geologic past as a um, instructor or, or as a natural lab experiment, experiment for looking forward. So um, uh, that's what I find really fascinating. And, um, and I'm also, the other thing that I think is really important at, at particularly maybe it's just at my stage in my career, but trying to see the scientific relevance for society in what I do. And I think the most important thing is really looking at the implications of the present warming for sea level rise. Um, it's happening uh, at an accelerating rate. Um, we're seeing phenomenal uh, melt rates in some of the glaciers. And so the idea that sea level in fact may be accelerating is frightening when we think just for a moment about the impact of the Syrian crisis on the immigration of, mi of migrants going into Europe and the, and the chaos and unsettling that, that that's happening just to handle that volume of people. Mm. We're facing as many as eight to 10 million people migrate, having to migrate out of Southern Florida, mm. the Mississippi coast, Alabama, there's various projections for the number of people that are gonna be having to move into northern Texas or northern Florida or into other states. We're not thinking that far ahead because politicians mainly can't think for them right. more than four <laughs> or five years, but we really need to get that conversation going about managed retreat from our coastline. So yeah. I'm trying to use my knowledge of the vulnerability of the ice sheets and and the repeated sea level rise to say something about the fact that today's sea level rise is not reversible. Mm. We can't you know, stop it necessarily. Even if we stop the CO2 emissions, we're still committed to a various levels of sea level rise. And so we really need to think about that. And there are people up and down the coastlines who are thinking about that mm. already and trying to think about how we handle the um, the encroachment of the sea in in a in a way that's not going to break the bank yeah. economically. Yeah, it's going to be a huge change no matter what. Yeah, and and I think you know the projections are large. So uh, I was just at the Polar 2018 meeting. It was an Arctic and Antarctic meeting in Davos, Switzerland, last week, and the estimates. I mean, you can put a big envelope on those for maybe half a meter, um, two feet, three feet, um, maybe four feet at max, you know, so a, a half a meter to a meter and a half. Somewhere in that range is where we're going to be in the lifetime of, of a first grader today. So by the time mm. a first grader is about 90 years old, sea level could be anywhere from 50 centimeters to 150 centimeters or plus or minus meter and a half. And when you think about it in the context of one person's lifetime, that really should put the accelerator on our transition to policies that help us think about how to manage it. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of where I'm trying to take my research and join a whole chorus of voices all over the yeah. country and throughout even some federal agencies about what we need to do 
Yeah. I have a question. Yeah. Can I ask? Um, so, obviously, you believe that um, what we men what we're doing to the climate is vastly accelerating yes. what's happening, right? Do you think the fact that um, pr in previous times, like what a million, three million years ago, it was done without the help of man, right? Because we weren't around. The very fact that that exists, does that hurt, like, to the average policymaker go, well, it's not man-made because, <laughs> look, it happened before and we weren't here. So, because they believe it's, man is not contributing to it. And, and in some ways, like, if you were to bring them up there and show them and they'd say, yeah, but it happened three million years ago. And you, and you go, that's different. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it, well, I have to remind people that you can, you can warm the world two different ways, primarily. And one of them is with the change in the Earth's orbit um, mm -hmm. and the tilt of the Earth right. and so on. So you ch change the insulation uh, distribution on the planet and over time and the seasonal changes. So that's one way you can do it. But the other way you can do it is with, with carbon dioxide. Right. And it's, it's um, um, very clear that right now uh, it's, it's carbon dioxide. because Could be both, though, right? Um, no, not really. Oh. If you look at where we are uh, orbitally, um, we really should be heading into the next ice age. Ah. So if humans were not changing the planet, and if we were to live that long into the future, say 40,000, 50,000 years from now, we might see a, an ice sheet coming out of Canada. But that <laughs> so it would be actually <laughs> happening faster. If it was still Canada in 40,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> that's a long that's, spin in the human time true. scale, right? Uh, I hadn't thought of that. All these different time scales are kind of mind-blowing to think about, right? It's like, yeah. how long have humans, you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room and how long have humans even been around, but it's right. like 80,000 I mean, years. So glacial, interglacial cycles mm -hmm. are often, at least in the last million years or so, you know, roughly... Uh, every 100,000 years, mm -hmm. okay? And we've got evidence here in New England, right outside here in Amherst, of, of at least two of these large um, ice advances, just because they, they often effectively erode away what happened before. Mm -hmm. So we, we know that the ice can come out of Canada on <laughs> these kinds of, of scales, and the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere usually bounces uh, in a warm period at around 280 parts per mil and then in a glacial, it drops down to 180 parts per mil, and then it goes up again. Mm -hmm. um, so, so through those cycles, we see the waxing and waning of ice sheets. And, and if you look at an unperturbed uh, cycle, we should be going in toward the next ice age. And we actually, the Earth started to cool normally, in the, particularly in the high latitudes, about three or 4,000 years ago. The glaciers in Norway came back. We started to have um, ice shelves off of northern Ellesmere Island. Yeah, sea ice came back, whereas in a little bit earlier than that, these things had melted back because of the warm interglacial that we, we were in. in. Mm. So we're in the waning stages of this interglacial, but we humans have turned it around with carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. the, the last time we had CO2 this high was a natural phenomenon. We had about three million years ago, about 400 parts per mil in the atmosphere, mm. Why was that? Because we were coming from the time of the dinosaurs, 65 million years ago. The Earth um, has been cooling from 65 million, and CO2 has been dropping. The estimates for CO2 in the Cretaceous and the dinosaur time is, I don't know, 
two, three, four hundred thousand, you know, uh, four thousand parts yeah, per million. Something right. really high number. Yeah. Wow. So with and what's phenomenal is there's a there's w the Earth was cooling through from the time of the dinosaurs up through the uh, three six, uh, three million years ago. Why was that? What was bringing down CO two? Well, the primary explanation is actually the uplift of mountains. That if you mm -hmm. uplift mountains, uplift the Himalayas, uh, the Rockies, all the various mountain ranges that have formed in the last 65 million years, they bring um, silicate minerals uh, um, to the surface affected by rain. They weather, and in that weathering process, you actually take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to make clay materials. Mm -hmm. so, so as mountains uplift, the weathering of rock, we call it the rock weathering thermostat, mm -hmm. was pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, cooling the earth, eventually 34 million years ago, starting up, ramping up the uh, glaciation of Antarctica, and then coming into, say, three, two million year, years ago, starting the northern hemisphere glaciations. So, so we're 400 parts per mil now at, well, almost 410, I think, um, yeah, parts per mil. So in my lifetime, I mean, it was, I think I looked at it, it was about 310 when I was born. Mm. We're now at about 410. Wow. Mm -hmm. so, um, so in my um, 63 years, it's gone up quite a bit. And so what you're <laughs> saying is we need new mountains. We need new mountains. <laughs> <laughs> That's a okay. great idea. Interesting idea. Okay. <laughs> so I've often regretted that we... Don't have those Rocky Mountain-like mountains over there in the Berkshires. Mm -hmm. you know, that'd be great. That's yeah. a good idea. There, there's a wonderful example um, that that we can take away from. For example, when when I graduated from high school, gasoline was like 29 cents a gallon, and I went to the pump and I had a choice between leaded and unleaded gasoline oh. because uh, we were in that transition with the Clean Air Act of getting rid of lead out of the gasoline. Lead was being measured in the ice sheets in Greenland. We could see that through the industrial age and the, in the layers of, of snow and ice in the, in the uh, ice sheets that lead was going up in our atmosphere. We know lead's not good for us. Yeah. So we went ahead and, and went to unleaded gasoline. Over time, we transitioned from that. And now if you uh, measure the precipitation of snow in Greenland, there's not, not any lead in it. That's mm. very little. It's, we've changed the chemistry of the atmosphere. We didn't ruin the economy. We didn't break the bank. And so we have the capacity to do that, just like we altered the uh, acidification of lakes by what we put in the atmosphere. We no longer have uh, CFCs um, uh, to the extent that we've had before. So we have the capacity to do this yeah. without... Um, ruining the economy, which is a typical ploy by the climate deniers that, that we can't do anything about the climate because it'll ruin the economy. Nothing could be further from the truth um, if you look at the large increase in, in jobs, in clean energy, and solar and wind, yeah. far outweigh anything that the pathetic coal industry um, could offer. <laughs> right. There's going to be all the new jobs building mountains. Yes, we need to build those mountains. I was going to say, I heard the new um, EPA director wants to bring back leaded gasoline, though. Oh. The, the, the one who's replacing Pruitt? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> That's just how it feels. Sure, like exactly. We're moving. I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, no. Yeah, I think, I think you know, the, the, the economics uh, are going to be the driver. You know, sometimes I think it would just be so fantastic if CO2 was pink. 
because mm. if we could see the atmosphere getting pink, mm. we would do something about it, yeah. like we did with pollution and mm. smog. But unfortunately, we're challenged by having something we can't see. Yeah. And something that's natural that we produce. That yeah, we produce. Ourselves, right. just breathing. Yes. That's true. I really want to hear about your research in the Arctic and like your experience there. Ah, yeah. Well, I, I, um, I was been I've been working on sea level in Alaska, and when I came to UMass was roughly at about the time that the fall of the Soviet Union, and so we saw an opportunity. Um, in fact, literally within a month or two, had a proposal into the National Science Foundation <laughs> to jump over to Chukotka the other side of the Bering Land Bridge okay. across from Alaska to essentially uh, work with Russians and compare the glacial and sea level history of Alaska with the glacial and sea level history of Northeast Russia. Hmm. And, and I think of them as divided twins, you know, the sea level through the Bering Land Bridge today makes it a maritime environment with ships going, passing through between the two countries. But if you just go back 20,000 years ago, there was a, a exposed land bridge. Sea level was lower because the water had, and the oceans had been taken up in to make ice sheets. So the, this huge land bridge, a thousand kilometers wide, was open and barren for um, animals and people and various things to, to, to migrate. Um, so we, we wanted to compare with the Russians uh, what, what, what kind of geologic record had they seen, compare it with ours, and we thought that was um, you know, a really lofty, lofty goal, but we had uh, wonderful exchanges. And it was through my uh, work there that I learned about this meteorite impact lake. Okay. But I had very fond memories of getting flown in these Russian helicopters into a mountain range, um, inflating our, our small rafts, putting our field gear into the rafts, and then rafting our way back to the coastline along the rivers doing the geology along the way wow. um, and and really experiencing a very different uh, world uh, there but also um, really carrying out what I would call science diplomacy sharing mm. our knowledge about the planet with people who had otherwise been rather isolated and so I've been I continue to work with uh, scientists in Russia, also in Germany and Austria, on this project. Um, I even was able to visit uh, Wrangel Island in the East Siberian Sea. This is a small island um, that's just north of northern Russia. And I have to say, when you're standing on the north coast of that island looking across to the Arctic, to the North Pole, you really feel like that's the edge of the earth, <laughs> not to uh, bear any kind of support for the flat earth people but um, <laughs> at all. But nevertheless, um, that was a fascinating place. It was the site where mammoth um, mastodons were isolated as sea level rose at the end of the last ice age, and they persisted there up until only three or 4,000 years ago. Oh, just on this island? On this island, oh. and they... Um, they, because of their change in diet, they became kind of miniaturized. Oh. And so there's, when you walk around there, it's fascinating. There's, there's mammoth tusks and mammoth teeth just laying all over the ground. Wow. Really? It's wow. a national park oh. now for the yeah. Russians. And you have to have permits to get there. But it's just a fascinating landscape because it's, 
so desolate mm -hmm. and so dry today. And so that, that's also a very, um, was very rewarding environment. We were, we were there to determine whether or not there had ever been an ice sheet on top of this island or when, when there could have been an ice sheet. Okay. Um, and so we were able to answer some interesting controversies there with that work there. But, okay. Um, how, how did you get at that question? So what we were doing was um, looking for evidence of glaciation, looking for erratic boulders at various elevations, um, and, and also looking at coastal shorelines. If, if there had been an ice sheet on top of this island at any time in the past, the weight of the ice would actually um, bend and depress the crust of the earth in a way that when the ice sheet uh, disappeared, there would be evidence of these raised shorelines mm -hmm. around the edge. So, so the shorelines would get uplifted as the, as the lithosphere, as the crust of the earth rebounds after from the weight of that. Oh. Um, so we were looking for those kinds of things, and we were also doing um, a dating method called cosmogenic isotope dating, uh, which is uh, a relatively new method. We have uh, Isaac Larson in our department as a, a new wizard uh, doing that kind of analytical work. Um, and uh, what happens is with the exposure of rocks at the surface, cosmogenic rays are producing isotopes in the crystal lattice of the minerals, and the longer they're exposed, the more they accumulate these isotopes, and, and they can be measured by people like Isaac. Mm -hmm. So, so we, cosmogenic rays just means sunlight, right? Or is it something else? Well, it's, it's the actual cosmic flux coming okay. from uh, not only the sun, but through, the, through space. Okay. So, um, the, so that is, uh, has a relatively constant rate, or we have to at least assume that, since it's very difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. um, there are various approaches to measuring changes in cosmic flux um, uh, that I'm, I'm not as knowledgeable about, but we do measure this, um, like I think it's beryllium-10 in the ice cores. But, the, uh, but anyway, learning, looking at the age of when the last time these rocks had been eroded and scraped by the glaciers um, and, and when they were transporting these boulders could help us understand when there would have been an ice sheet there. And we determined that, in fact, yes, there has been an ice sheet of some sort in that area on the East Siberian Sea, but certainly not in at least the last 100,000 years and possibly 200,000 years. Mm -hmm. So we used the dating to dispel the idea that 20,000 years ago there had been an ice sheet there. And I think the mammoth tusks and teeth are enough evidence in them of themselves, actually, because there are mammoth, huge mammoth tusks and teeth that date back to 40, 45,000 years ago. So we mm. know these mammoth were not running around underneath, underneath the ice sheet, right? <laughs> so um, that would have been enough evidence there, but our work then helped solidify the notion that there hadn't been an ice sheet in that, in that area. So, uh, again, it just helps us understand the spatial variability in where ice sheets can form and when they disappear and, again, how that impacts the, in, in my case, I was looking at the sea level history of the Bering Land Bridge. Like, how often did the land bridge um, ex be, ex how often was it exposed? Hmm. How often is it like today where it's a maritime environment? Okay. Thanks.
Do you expect us to believe that you didn't pick up one of those uh, mammoth tooths and take it (laughs) home, right? Like a necklace, right? (laughs) Is that a mammoth tooth in your pocket? (laughs) We had a Russian scientist with us who was studying the isotopic signatures of the mammoth teeth. So he was taking uh, a a small, almost like um, Campbell soup can section of the mammoth uh, tooth home to do isotopic work and he let me have two of those coffee can sized pieces. Ah. Oh, so it's just a chunk, it doesn't look like just, a tooth. No, it doesn't look like a tooth. Mm. But I have a little chunk of that. Oh, that's cool. um, elsewhere in Russia, working in a remote place on this rafting trip I was talking about, we, we camped on the shore of the river one evening and nearby a Yupik uh, native person saw us and approached us and he found out that I was an American and felt compelled to give me this mammoth tooth that he just found. Oh wow. wow. And I was trying to give him back some gasoline or something else he may have needed because he's in the middle of nowhere. And he wouldn't he insisted on that I wouldn't give me any let me give him anything, but I gave all the candy bars I had to his daughter uh, <laughs> in nice. exchange. So you have this big so tooth? So I still have this oh, mammoth cool. tooth. Wow. I, I love to show it to school kids. I take it to yeah. classes yeah. to show it around. Um, because it's quite phenomenal to hold mm-hmm. a tooth uh, uh, that may be anywhere from say ten to twenty, thirty thousand years old in your hands and uh, I have to say that we asked that gentleman where he found it, and then we spent a day digging around in the cliffs at the river's edge trying to find the rest of the mammoth. Ah, we figured if look. the tooth was that well preserved, the mammoth, the, the rest of the mammoth must be nearby. Right. Yeah. But we weren't able to find it. Oh. Mm. I think it's interesting the way your career has been bookended. Uh, when you started, it was the fall of the Soviet Union, and now it's the rise of the Soviet Union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In fact, you know, it's phenomenal. Our, uh, coming back to my drilling project, that was a major commitment from the U.S. National Science Foundation, plus monies from European sources and so on. And we did this during what was called the International Polar Year, uh, 2007 to 2009. It's actually a two-year window. Every 50 years, we celebrate um, the Arctic. The last one was in 1950, uh, 758. And so during that time, it was a big push for international collaborations. Mm. So we were able to pull off getting equipment into Russia, a million dollar drill rig, get it into Russia, get out there, do the work, get the science done, bring the mud back to Germany and then back to the United States where we could continue to analyze it like we are. Um, we did the drilling in the winter time, so the ice on the lake, this lake is about 12 kilometers across, it's a big lake. Uh, so we went out there in the winter, set up everything at minus 50 degrees oh my God. in the winter time, so the ice was a meter thick. Wait, okay, let me step back. This drill rig weighed about 100 tons, okay? Mm-hmm. So you, you wanted the ice to be thick enough so that it would support 100 tons drill rig um, and I because I didn't want the drill rig and all the people in it crashing into the lake. You, you didn't want that. <laughs> I did not <laughs> want that to happen. So we actually had ice engineers from Edmonton, Alberta come out and um, before we put up the drill rig they got a Russian bulldozer out there who trusted a meter of ice 
they pushed away the snow, just like you were going to make a gigantic hockey rink out on the, on the ice. Uh-huh. And then they drilled a hole in the ice and pumped the water out of the lake onto the exposed ice surface and gradually, over two or three weeks, built up two meters of ice. Oh, wow. So they're essentially creating, um, adding buoyancy and strength to an ice platform that was about the size of a football field. Wow. So once the ice, and it was beautiful ice, absolutely clear ice. I mean, it's just beautiful. You could see right through it. You felt like you're standing on nothing. I mean, wow. it's that. Wow. You're just looking into blackness below you. Um, so then the drill rig was set up um, on that, and then the ice engineers, by the way, these are the same ice engineers that build the roads for the ice road trucker program. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they monitored the flotation of the platform uh, to make sure that it maintained its strength and integrity while we were out there for several months doing the drilling. Wow. So the, the logistics of this were amazing. We got the core material out. We've been sharing the science. We've got approaching 50 publications coming from the work so far. Wow. If I think about what's happening today in the Soviet Union and our relationship with them, I don't think we could pull this off today. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would be possible politically mm-hmm. to gather that kind of funding. It was a $10 million field campaign. Um, that took a tremendous amount of, of buy-in from several countries. And right now we're not in a position to possibly get that much buy-in. Mm-hmm. Right. And that um, was 10 years ago? Yeah, that was te- almost 10 years ago yeah. now when we did the drilling. Uh, and that was at... You, we haven't said the name of the lake yet. Oh, yes. It's Lake Elgagikin <laughs> in okay. northeast Russia. It's, it's a meteorite impact lake. Um, it looks, um, it's been used as in, in some cases as an analog for some of the meteorite impact craters on Mars that look like mm-hmm. they may have been filled with water in the past. Oh, wow. um, so it's a fascinating place and very much one of a kind. Um, it would be great if we had two or three more Lake basins like that around the Arctic, but because of where the ice sheets occurred, this is a one spot where there was a meteorite impact, large lake formed, and it was never glaciated through the last few million years. So just a remarkable um, place to do science and for the 65 of us scientists that have been working on the project, it's just been tremendously rewarding and, and again, a wonderful um, example of international collaboration when it works well. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today are Dr. Julie Brigham-McGretty and Adrian Lamb from the Geoscience Department at UMass Amherst, my department too. And my co-host today is comedian John Ross, who hosts a monthly show at The Wheelhouse in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Jumping right back into it. So, uh, yeah, wonderful experience, experiences. and uh, How much vodka did you drink? <laughs> oh, it's interesting about the vodka. Because I, <laughs> Not enough. It's funny. When I, um, normally I like to drink a glass of wine mm. or a beer. But going to Russia, you have to like vodka. Um, <laughs> and in all the years of negotiating the project uh, and working over there, um, I basically acquired a nice taste for vodka, a good good vodkas versus bad vodkas. Mm. Ah. Um, I now feel like I'm at least a, a, a beginner 
person who appreciates good vodka. But yeah, it is an interesting experience to actually be offered vodka for breakfast yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in, in a couple of places. Oh, uh, often it's just pulled out as a way of celebrating um, in a way that we just, you know. Celebrating three o'clock. Yeah, you, I mean, <laughs> if you were gonna set up a project and, you, and involve the Amherst government and you'd go down to the city hall, you would not expect people there to b- crack out the vodka <laughs> after you'd made your decision. But that's more or less what it was like wow. in, in uh, the various remote villages that I was in in Russia. Hmm. Is there, a, there such a thing as like a sommelier, but for vodka? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> Over there, there might be. Cool. Well, I think uh, it might be time to like shift gears and talk to Adrian, but is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to bring up, Julie? No, I, I just think it's important for any scientists listening to really um, think about public engagement with their science and try to take the science to policy. I think it's really important part of, of what we need to do as mm-hmm. scientists. Um, and maybe that has to happen after you get tenure. But, <laughs> um, but I think it's really important for, for the science community to, to get more involved with policy. Mm. Cool. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, we're going to shift gears and talk to Adrian. So, right. Adrian, I'll let you just, like, jump into it. Tell us about your research. Okay, well, I don't have as much to say about as Julie does. She's got, like, an entire <laughs> awesome career. I'm a little older than you are. That's true. <laughs> so, I'll just start from the beginning. So, I did my master's in Ohio, and when I was there, I knew I wanted to be a paleontologist, so I work with fossils. I really love dead, fossilized things. Which is kind of weird, I know, but it works well for me. Um, But when I was in Ohio, I was working with how invertebrate animals, these things called brachiopods and trilobites, how and why they disperse across ocean basins, and what are the factors that create new species. So we were working with rocks from North America. Um, We did a little bit of field work in Estonia. They, too, have good vodka and are really into Mm -hmm. the vodka (laughs) drinking. Um, And... Most of my data came from museum collections, so it wasn't a ton of field work, but what I did was basically use um, statistical models to see how these organisms move through deep time and the drivers that caused them to move and to create new species. And we found that it was ocean currents that were one of the primary drivers. And when the ocean, when the, sorry, not the ocean, but when the um, atmosphere and the earth cooled, that's when we had a kick up of these ocean currents. They started spinning a bit faster and moving a bit more. Mm and we create new species. They were able to move from one area to another. So I'm really interested in this idea of these currents um, in our oceans today and in the past and how they led to the creation of new species. But working in deep time 450 million years ago, the fossil record is really great, but it's also really incomplete. And it's hard to kind of go out in the field and find the rocks of a certain age that you need. So that's when I decided to come here to UMass and work with Mark Lucky, my advisor, and he works with these fossil plankton called Foraminifera. So Foraminifera are alive today in our oceans, and there's two main types. There's planktic and there's benthic. The planktics live at the top of the water column um, in the open marine system. They live from about down to maybe 200 meters water depth. And then there's the benthics that live on the bottom of the seafloor. So I exclusively work with the planktic Foraminifera. And these guys are cool. They're single-celled organisms. They're protists. They're not animals. And they secrete a calcium carbonate shell. So their shell is made of the same things as like a seashell is made of, essentially. And when they die, their lifespan is super fast. They only live a couple weeks to maybe a month or so. When they die, their shells float down to the seafloor and collect over time. 
So when we go out into these major ocean basins and drill down to the seafloor, we can actually recover, just like Julie was talking about getting cores, but we do it from the middle of ocean basins. We recover this sediment record that goes back in geologic time millions and millions of years. So using those fossils and these sediment records, I look at evolutionary events. So when did these protists evolve? What caused them to evolve? And that's kind of what I'm working on now. Um, specifically, what I'm doing is working in the Northwest Pacific. Off the coast of Japan, there's this major, major western boundary current. So western boundary currents occur in all major ocean basins. The one closest to us is the Gulf Stream. And they're wind-driven currents, so they're driven by the trade winds, essentially, in part. So when the trade winds strengthen or decline, you know, they decrease in strength, that has a direct effect on the speed and maybe the intensity of these currents. And we also think how much they move latitudinally to the north or to the south. So I'm working um, across this big current off the coast of Japan, the Kuroshio Current and its extension, and I'm working with three drill sites that cross this current to see how these plankton evolved and to do some geochemistry to see like what were the drivers of evolution um, in the Earth's most recent past, the Neogene, so about 15 million years ago till today. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. So it's kind of a climate change issue, but I really like to look at how climate change through the geologic past has influenced the number of species or the decline of species or how we make how species are made. It's one of my major concerns. So you're so you're able to learn about the ocean currents from millions of years ago by looking at these fossils? Yeah, so um, in deep time in the Ordovician, we actually, there was a climate model that came out and it showed, it reconstructed all these ocean currents across the globe. So then I took my, um, these patterns that I was seeing for brachiopods and trilobites and compared them to those ocean currents and actually found that those dispersal patterns pretty closely matched the ocean currents. Hmm. Some didn't, which was interesting. Still not sure exactly how to explain that yet. But yeah, even in recent time, more recent time, we see that these foraminifera pretty much stay in a latitudinal band, so the Earth um, can kind of be divided into like zones of temperature, right? You have your coldest zones at the poles. As you get towards the equator, it's warmer. Foraminifera pretty much stay in those temperature bands. Some species really like the tropics, some species are really happy at the cold latitudes. Um, so using those different species and what they like today, we can project that back into the past to see, okay, where did these guys like to live in the past? Does that match up with our um, ocean chemistry, saying that it's hot or cold? So we can, and we can kind of use them to reconstruct, to a degree, some of the currents. Wow. So yeah, that's it, in part what I'm trying to do as well. Um, so can I in, in, inject here, is that the Kuroshua current that she's talking about mm -hmm. is in the Northwest Pacific, and that current actually allowed even three million years ago and the work that I'm doing in, in Beringia and across the coast of Alaska, I can see organisms at Barrow, Alaska three million years ago that today live in northern Japan. Okay? So they have so that means that the water temperatures presum presumably the water temperatures off Barrow, Alaska could have been as much as nine degrees warmer than present because there's no other way to explain mm -hmm. how these organisms that today live in off Japan could get up there. So, so that mm. that shift in zones and climate zones is something we can map very effectively. Wow, uh, like that. Yeah. yeah. I have a question. Maybe. So, uh, when we used to call it 
mistakenly, we called it global warming, mm -hmm. right? But that, but that sort of stuck in a lot of people's brains. Mm -hmm. But we smartly changed it to climate change because, you know, you have these uh, idiots in Congress. The guy walks in with a snowball and goes, look, it's cold outside, <laughs> so it can't possibly Senator be. Senator Inhofe, the worst. Right. Um, now, I my understanding is that sort of what is happening, the cold is almost worse because uh, as there's melting at the polar cap, it melts and it goes into the Gulf Stream. And so cold water is now uh, coming in and creating more sort of cold. And that's, it's temporary because eventually, you know. Yeah. But is, is that right? Is that what's happening? Sort of. So the reason that, okay, so I'll address a few things here. So global warming I don't think is wrong necessarily. Right, average, ultimately, yes. Right, the entire planet's warming. But we didn't want to use that terminology because people were seeing, like you said, yeah. areas that were getting colder, and they're like, what the heck's going on here? But I think, in part, land areas are getting colder because of the jet stream. So here in New England, we have these, what do they call them, the Arctic blasts uh, that come the down. polar vortex. Yeah, yep. so we have these weakening of the jet stream that usually keeps that Arctic air to the north. But when that weakens and gets unstable, then we have this really cold air that blasts down over us in New England here. Um, and it, yeah, we had all that snow and ice, and it was just horrible. Yeah, and yeah. I, I just I hear average people just going, oh, because there's no global right. warming. Well, right, like, I, come on, but guys. that's actually a part of the the denier playbook is mm -hmm. to sure. con confuse people between weather right. and climate. Mm -hmm. So climate is average over decades. Mm -hmm. Weather is what you see out the window happening. We are having these intense winters, but it's actually because of the warming mm -hmm. that's happening elsewhere, Alaska's having record warm winters right. uh, mm -hmm. because the air there is being pulled upward from the south to the north in, in this big trough system. Mm -hmm. well, they, didn't they just record the hottest temperature ever overnight? In, somewhere in the Middle East, it was 108. Oh, did they? Uh, 108 was the overnight low. Right, oh. yeah. right. There's a whole bunch of records that uh, have been broken, and I think one that shocked me the most is that um, we just entered uh, April this year is Earth's 400th warmer than normal month in a row. Wow. 400 months in a row with above normal temperatures. Mm. And wasn't uh, there somewhere over Siberia recently that broke a temperature record just this week? It was like yeah. more than 40 degrees warmer than it's ever been. Yeah. Oh my it gosh. Yeah. Wild. There's, there's records being broken, particularly over this over the last few weeks, and, yeah. and but also over the last several years. And so yeah. that's something we'll get used to in our lifetime. Oh, yeah, the records constantly being broken. And and there are scientists working on, for example, in the heartland of our agricultural zones, showing that where today you might get maybe five or ten days a year when it's over a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. That may go up to 30 to 40 days a year when it's over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So what kind of crops are you going to grow in that kind of environment, mm -hmm. right? So those are the kinds of things that uh, where people, again, can be um, use climate models like Time Lords and go forward in time to see, project what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Oh, but your other comment that you made about the oceans mm -hmm. ice uh, melting and putting in colder water. So that's actually affecting our western boundary currents, like the Gulf Stream. Mm -hmm. It's actually slowing down circulation patterns because our waters are getting warmer. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of weird because these areas are major areas are fisheries. So like off the coast of Japan at the Kuroshio Current and its extension, 
There's a lot of nutrients that are being upwelled from the deep ocean as that current is flowing. So actually in the Croatia region, that's the one place in the world where corals are found furthest north or furthest towards the poles because there's mm. so much warm water that's being brought into that area. And when you have a coral reef system, you have a bunch of fish. Um, and when you have a healthy population, this is really great for fishermen. That's where they get their catch. But as you change these systems through time and those currents slow down or they become sluggish, how does that change the coral population? How does that change the fish population? Mm. So this could potentially have and is projected to have really devastating effects on fisheries as well, getting back to you know industries and economies that are going to be devastated. So I want to hear, you're going to talk about time scavengers? Oh, right, yeah, it was kind of, <laughs> yeah, okay. So the other thing that I do is education and outreach and science communication. So Julie, like you were saying earlier, we really need to get this information out into the public. And we don't do a good job of breaking down and explaining why climate change is happening. Or, you know, even evolution is another hotly debated topic today. There are several states, Tennessee, Kentucky, I think is one of them, um, that actually want to teach intelligent design and all these other alternative theories to evolution alongside evolution or in their classrooms. And that's scary because evolution, that informs us about how to make vaccines, um, how viruses mutate. This is important stuff too. And as climate change gets worse and these other animals start migrating um, to different areas. So for example, the Zika virus, there were those, I think they're called zebra mosquitoes, something like that. Anyway, that species used to be um, kind of constrained to equatorial regions, some warmer areas, but as other areas are getting warmer, they're migrating north and south of the equator. So even here in New England, now we have to worry about that. So as climate change intensifies, it's really pertinent that we understand how evolutionary processes work um, so we, that we can understand best how to approach these diseases and viruses um, as they become more widespread. So what I do is run an education outreach website along with my colleague Jen that breaks down and explains climate change and evolution to the public. And we want to make this information more digestible and kind of easier to understand. Right now the site has about 30, 30 so static pages and that includes background just on general geologic knowledge, different rock types, different types of fossilization and preservation of fossils. Um, we also have background information about stable isotopes. So I've alluded to geochemistry. So I talk about that and explain it on my website. The other two major static page section, sections that we have are on climate change. And I just step through kind of what's going on. I talk about the atmosphere, ocean circulation, um, climate and CO2 on longer time scale. So everything that we've talked about today uh, listeners could go on this website and then kind of read more about all of these things that we've been talking about. And then our evolution pages, Jen has written those to kind of be the same as the climate and that she steps you through these major evolutionary theories and why we know evolution is a theory. Um, but we also have six blog components as part of this website. So around the last election, I got really mad for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was people just had a general lack of science knowledge. They didn't understand that climate change was an important issue. Um, there were things on social media, people were saying, I don't even know a scientist. You know, what do these scientists do? I was like, oh my gosh. They're kind of right. We're not good at putting ourselves out there. So I turned that negativity into something positive with this website and approached Jen with the idea and with her help, the site has grown into something more than I ever thought it could be. But the blog components actually try to introduce the public to different scientists. So we have a Meet the Scientist blog. 
where every other week we just feature a new scientist. Not necessarily a geoscientist, but we featured engineers, citizen scientists, people that are just really passionate about fossil collecting. Um, we also have a climate and science news blog where we just break down and explain these really important papers that have published, have been published recently in the realms of climate change or climate science um, or evolutionary theory. And then we have a bunch of other blogs that really just kind of give people a look into our lives as scientists and what we do. Um, like someone recently wrote a post about imposter syndrome and how she deals with it. But the site's cool because it's not just Jen and I, we also have 10 other collaborators working with us that help us write these blog posts. And we really aim to feature diversity of scientists and diverse in every sense and meaning of the word in terms of the science that they do, their backgrounds, their religious beliefs, um, everything. So yeah, we've just tried to really bring science into the public light. So people, if they just wanna go somewhere to learn about climate change or evolution, both, they have a place to do that. It's um, called Time Scavengers. Yes, thank you. Timescavengers.blog <laughs> is where it's at. What's yeah. imposter syndrome? Oh, imposter syndrome is something a lot of graduate students suffer from. I guess not just either even graduate students, so yeah. probably undergraduates and probably young professors. Typically, it tends to affect women more. It's where you feel like you don't belong in the oh. geosciences or any science field or any field you're in. Sort of like oh. the idea that you like think that pe you've like fooled everybody and you've gotten yeah. to where, I don't yeah. know if it's even, I mean, I think it comes up a lot in the sciences, yes. but um, I think in, in any field, somebody, uh, you know, you hit field. a point where you think you're like, you don't feel like you belong in the position you're in. You feel like people are trusting you with too much power or something right. like that. And I can say, and you feel like you haven't earned that it. Yep. Most people I know who the first time they got into a writer's room <laughs> yeah, or every time they got into a writer's room yeah. uh, in Hollywood, you are feeling I'm a fraud and it's a matter of time before they discover that. Right. That's exactly yeah. it. Well, and one thing that's come up with me and Adrian before is we're both first generation scientists. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, a lot of scientists maybe have grown up around science, but we We're coming it. into it. Yeah. <laughs> we have non-academic parents, you know, right. and and so then there's a degree to which it's a very new world to you to walk into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I told you and I told Julia not too long ago either. You know, when I first came to UMass, I felt like I didn't belong at all. There was a lot of people here that had gone to, for example, my lab mate went to Brown. I was like, oh, my God. You know, I just started off at some like, you know. Appalachian school and then went to Ohio University, which everyone thinks is Ohio State. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have that pedigree. I'm lacking this. I don't belong here. So it's really taken me a long time to kind of get over that, talk myself out of it and say, yeah, you do. Cut it out. But yeah. that's hard to do. Not everyone can do that. And there's it's two sides hard. to it, too. I mean, there's the what comes from within of the feeling of not belonging. And then there's the legitimate outside forces that maybe make people feel like they don't belong where yep. an environment hasn't been designed to include all people. But and the flip side is that the people who really don't belong are the ones who never feel that. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're the ones who, who are complete uh, frauds and imposters, and they think they're the greatest thing, and they're the usually ones who rise to positions of power who then make decisions uh, on people. Somebody's who, coming yeah. to mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whose name we shall not say. Wow, I touched a nerve. Uh, wow. <laughs> So um, 
We should get, we should get to wrapping up, but I don't know. Is there anything about your science that hasn't come up, Adrian? Um, we've talked a little bit about foraminifera. Do you want to tell people what they look like, or a little bit about how you like the process of studying them? Because they're not like what you would think of as yeah. a fossil in the state. Like most people think of a fossil, they think of a big bone, right? Maybe That's like a true. mammoth tooth. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> not a on mammoth the other tooth. End. Yeah, quite small. So they're about the size of a grain of sand. Super, super tiny. I don't know how to describe what they look like. They're so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so if you Google them, you know, do a Google image search, you'll bring up all kinds of pictures. But they've been around on Earth for about the last 160 million years. So some of them just look like Tic Tacs. Some of them look like <laughs> other pieces of odd candy. I don't know. They're just amazing. But they usually have a coiled shell. And they have different chambers to that shell, or test as we call it. And some of them have this really amazing ornamentation, like these, what we call a keel. Some of them are double keeled, so they have this like narrow little band around them. Some of them have or had spines in life, so some of them are what we call macroperforate. Some are microperforate. Some have a really thickened test. Um, they're amazing. They come in all shapes and sizes, mm. and they're they're so much fun to study. But when so I guess I should talk a little bit more. I know you want to wrap up about how I study these, but um, essentially what we do, I've alluded to the fact that we get these sediment cores from the ocean. So last summer, I was on an expedition where we were actually sailing in the Tasman Sea between Australia and New Zealand. And I was on the ship for two months. It was awesome. Because mm. it was like the New Zealand's kind of winter going into spring. It was just amazing being out on the open ocean, seeing no land around. Um, you are in a ship with about 120 people and you spend time with these people for two months. And it's actually kind of great. They cook for you. I mean, the ship, the people on the ship cook for you. They do your laundry. Um, and I was there purely to just do science as a paleontologist. So my job on the ship was to essentially tell time using fossils. So I like Julie's description of, you know, a time lord. Yeah. So basically what we are, and if, you, if we're time lords, then our, the sediment record is our TARDIS back into time. Yeah. So it's really great that we can just study these sediments that we bring up, whether it be from a lake or an ocean. Um, but essentially what we do is we bring up these amazing cores, you bring them onto deck, you split them in half and then cut them. And then we take little samples out of that sediment at regular intervals and you wash that sediment over a sieve. And that's how we get out the microfossils. It's a really low key process. It just involves a sink and a sieve is all you need. Then we dry that in the oven. Um, that dried fraction, we call the coarse fraction, we then put in a jar to use when we're ready to look at it. When we want to look at it, we just throw that under a microscope. And that's how I identify the different species that are in each sample. So it's not, we're not doing anything high tech. It's actually really simple what we do, but the data that we're getting out of these sediment samples is pretty high impact. Mm -hmm. So all I've done for the past few months is set up my microscope and I just sit there. You've, you've walked in on me a few times, yeah, you sitting there like a statue. <laughs> it looks like you're looking at sand on exactly, the microscope yeah. and then you use like a paintbrush to move them around and stuff, yeah. Exactly, so my art skills in high school really paid off. <laughs> I used to paint a lot, but now I just, you know, use a paintbrush all the time because that's what I'm doing. I'm just picking out these certain formnifera and putting them on these slides to look at. Um, but that's basically what we do and then once we have, you know, identified species in each sample through time, then we can use that database, that data set, to do all kinds of cool analyses on. And that's kind of the stage I'm at now. I've built this data, data set, um, and now I'm just doing some other investigations into the drivers of evolution, where, when and why did a species originate. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Nice. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, I think it's time to move on to the last segment of our show, which is a little game that I created called GTA. Guess that acronym. <laughs> and so my guests have provided me with some acronyms, and we're going to make John guess what those acronyms might mean. How okay. Do you feel? How, how you feeling, I, John? I'm, I'm ready. I have, <laughs> I have a bit of a science. I was a physics major in college oh, really? for two years. <laughs> I was turned Wh- out I actually what I actually was an imposter. <laughs> That's what it turned out. But I, I was thrown out of the physics department when I wrote a sex and physics manual called Fun with Friction. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, okay. Let's jump into our acronyms. Okay. Okay, your first acronym is GAR. So S C A R. S C A R. You wanna say hello to my little friend? <laughs> um, uh, society, I want to say, s- s- no, science, no. Science. Science, yes. Uh, science. Or scientific. Scientific. Is the A Arctic also? Because we're going to get to, I'm skipping C. Scientific. <laughs> it's at the other end of the world. Antarctic. Yeah. Uh, the scientific. Children. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Uh, Go with it. I like scientific, it. Scientific uh, cathedral. Uh, <laughs> scientific Cretaceous. Uh, ah, no, I like it. right? Um, is the last one research? Yes. Oh. You so got, I, you got I science and you've got a scientific sea and Antarctica and research. Uh, core. Uh, oh. You're hitting a lot of good keywords. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. Why give it to me. Yeah, Julie, jump in. <laughs> it's the Scientific Committee for Antarctic committee. Research. Ah. Committee. Ah, see, I needed to go to a kind of a generic there. No, that's Is that also an international committee? Yeah. So, so the Antarctic uh, Treaty, which is a multinational um, or agreement on Antarctica, uh, um, has also with it the uh, Antarctic Committee for uh, Scientific Committee for Antarctic Research, that also dictates the collaborations, international collaborations, and programs that are conducted under the Antarctic Treaty. the um, The meeting that I was just at in Davos, Switzerland, was a joint meeting of the Arctic and the Antarctic, and this was largely mm. again led by SCAR. Ah. <laughs> okay. Well, I think it's time to wrap things up. Thank you so much for coming. Do you guys on the know show. what SAG-AFTRA stands for? <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Yeah, go SAG-AFTRA. You guys know that one. Screen Actors Guild. That's SAG. What's the next AFTRA. Part? AFTRA. AFTRA. Yep. Association. American. For. Federation. <laughs> television. Oh. Radio actors. Oh. Member of both and the WGA, the Writers Guild of America. Cool. Ah. So our radio show was covered by the That's right. (laughs) I will be getting residuals (laughs) from this. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Um, John and Julie and Adrian. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. you Great. Thank you. Okay. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUI Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. My guests today were Dr. Julie Brigham Gretti and Adrian Lamb of the Geoscience Department at UMass Amherst. My co-host was John Ross. Um, You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Labs in the Polymer Science Department here at UMass. 
The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Thank you so much for listening. Please keep it locked to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst.